Christ is risen. risen Hey, uh, I'm going to say a couple things and none of this counts toward my sermon time. Um, do, do grab a bulletin. Um, I know we stand here and we give you all the announcements for things that are happening. And I'm sure like just that one time of you hearing it, it's like locked in forever. You all have memories like steel cages, but this is going to help you remember what's going on just in case there's a leak in your steel cage. But there's also, uh, there's the, the prayer for the day, which is really wonderful. Something that you can come back to every day this week. Uh, in prayer, but then also at the very bottom, it's going to give you just a little snippet of where uh, Sanctuary stands financially for the month. And so uh, that just helps you keep track with us about where we're at as a community. And then, yeah, there's upcoming stuff, the weekly rhythms. So do grab one of these, just keep, keep Sanctuary on your radar, okay? Second thing, Again, my time hasn't started yet. I, uh, I got invited to a, a luncheon on, on Friday at a, a, another church here in town, and it was with other, other pastors, other faith leaders, and the, the, the thrust of the conversation was basically talking about the ways in which we're facing all kinds of division. I mean, no secret, right? We're, we're heading into uh, an election year, and it doesn't always feel like we're heading into an election year. Like... It's just like this perpetual thing, right? Um, and so we had a chance to, to talk as, as pastors and, and people who are serving their community about what our joys are, about what some of our, our fears are, and sitting there listening to these other individuals and, and the kind of, of fear and the kind of anxiety they have when they think about their communities, when they think about the people that they serve, um, it made me well up with so much gratitude and joy for who Sanctuary is. Um, not just because you saved me from a lot of those anxieties, but, and that's not just because you're nice people, right? But it's because like we as a group of people have learned to think about things in a certain way. We've learned to prioritize certain things in a certain way where we realize our, our faith how we believe, what we believe to be true about God and ourselves and our neighbor takes priority over all the other stuff, right? Over how we vote and all of our opinions and all these different kinds of things that tend to divide us. So it was just a really sweet snippet into, you know, getting a glimpse into other people's experiences around Tulsa and realizing, man, sanctuary is, is such a gift and such a blessing. And so thank you for being, for being those kinds of people. Okay, now you can start, start the clock. <clears throat> Over the next couple of weeks, we're gonna do something that we don't often do at sanctuary. We're gonna do kind of a mini series just this week and next week on this topic of confession. <laughs> or as we also know it, the sacrament of reconciliation. Oftentimes people are surprised to learn that confession, personal confession, is, is something that we practice and something that we offer here at Sanctuary. Uh, our, our position, which is the position of most communities in the Anglican tradition is this. All may, some should, None must. Did you catch that? All may participate in this sacrament of confession. Some should participate in that sacrament, but none must. 
For most people, participating in our weekly corporate confession that we say week after week after week before we come to the table, this, this confession where we acknowledge that we have sinned against God and thought, word, and deed by what we have done, by what we have left undone. We've not loved God with our whole heart. We've not loved our neighbor as ourselves. That confession is, is sufficient for most. But one of the dangers, I think, of simply relying on a corporate confession to deal with matters of sin and forgiveness and reconciliation is that too often it leaves sin to be this kind of ambiguous thing, when in reality sin is often very specific. So the danger then is that we only think of sin in terms of our general confession without doing some of that necessary soul-searching work of recognizing sin with any kind of specificity. And if we don't know what our sins are, if we can't name what those things are that are going on inside of us, that keep welling up for us, how can we truly receive forgiveness? How can we truly come to a place of penitence? Aren't you excited for the next two weeks? Today's gospel reading deals with this issue of forgiveness. Peter says, how often should I forgive? Peter asked Jesus, how many times? I also want to draw our attention to the Old Testament text for today. It's the, the text out of Exodus 14, which would be a familiar passage to, to most, if not all of you. We're not going to take time to read it right now. But this is, this is the climactic moment of Israel's departure out of Egypt. This is the moment when the Red Sea parts, the Israelites walk across on dry land, but when the Egyptians pursued them, the sea comes crashing down on them and Pharaoh and his armies are drowned. This is how that reading ends, just the last two verses. This is Exodus 14, verses 30 and 31. It says, thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great work that the Lord did against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and believed in the Lord and his servant Moses. They saw the dead on the seashore and they saw the great work the Lord had done. For a lot of us, this is a kind of typology for dealing with those people who have wounded us people who have hurt us, people who have betrayed us. We hope to simply leave them alone and let God and all of his greatness deal with them. Oftentimes we hope the way God deals with them is leaving them dead on the seashore. The Israelites flee from the Egyptians, from those people who had oppressed them, had enslaved them, and they just leave the rest to God. God comes against the Egyptians, the text tells us, against Pharaoh and against Pharaoh's armies, and the Israelites are free to leave them alone. Whether we know it or not, this is what we often assume forgiveness looks like, simply leaving people alone who have harmed us and wishing them no ill will. We think so long as we get to that point, we have forgiven them. On November 17th, 1935, 88 years ago, 
in Finkelwald, Germany, Dietrich Bonhoeffer preached a sermon on these texts. And it was a sermon on forgiveness. And he's preaching this sermon on forgiveness to these students, to these, these secret seminarians that are a part of this underground seminary using these very same texts that we heard today. And this context matters because it was in that place, at this underground seminary, this, this community of people who had committed to this new monasticism, where Bonhoeffer invites them to forgiveness. Why is it secret? <laughs> Why is it underground? Well, because they're surrounded by Nazi Germany. He opened this, his sermon in the same way that I want to begin today. I want to invite you just for a moment, and this is a strange thing, we don't often do this, but I wanna invite you to just close your eyes for a moment. I'm not gonna ask to see like a show of hands or anything. I wanna invite you to close your eyes and let's just for a moment quietly and honestly ask ourselves whether we know anyone whether we know anyone from our own circle of friends or family that we have not forgiven. Some wrong that they've done to us, a betrayal, a hurt of some kind, a person that we have separated ourselves from in anger. Maybe not even an open, out loud kind of anger, maybe just a kind of quiet bitterness. Who's that person for you about whom you've told yourself, I can't stand it any longer. I can't be connected with this person anymore. Picture them, hold their image in your mind. What do you notice? about them? How do you see them? What's the expression on their face? What's their posture like? Remember there's a possibility that someone sees you like this. Maybe there's someone that you have wounded, that you have betrayed. I think one of the temptations we often face is to not allow anyone in those moments to come to mind for us, to believe that we don't have anyone like that in our lives. Bonhoeffer looks out over this community of students and people who had committed to this community, this life together in the presence of Nazi Germany and he asks them this question, are we so indifferent to other people that we do not even know whether we are living in peace or at odds with them? Is there anyone in your life, he asks them, who might someday stand up and accuse you saying, you separated yourself from me in discord. You could not tolerate me. 
You broke off fellowship with me. You turned away from me. I once did you wrong, he says, and you left me alone. I often looked for you, but you avoided me. I wanted nothing more than your forgiveness, and yet you were nowhere to be found. Again, part of the difficulty of forgiveness is that we often confuse it with just not hating someone or not actively wishing them ill in some way. And in some ways we've traded active forgiveness, the work of forgiveness with just a kind of indifference. Not actively wishing that person ill will. And when we make that trade, the thing that we miss out on is the liberating power of the kind of forgiveness that Christ calls us to practice. Again, Bonhoeffer says, we completely blunt our sensibility, not allowing ourselves to think of anyone that we haven't forgiven. And then believe that not thinking ill of someone is the same as forgiving the person. But in doing so, we utterly fail to see that as a matter of fact, we have no positive thoughts about that person. And to forgive them would mean having nothing but good thoughts about the person and supporting that person whenever we can. It's not enough, Bonhoeffer says, to just not think ill of someone. Forgiveness involves getting to that place where we can think only positive, where we can think only good and hope only the best for that person that's wounded us. Forgiveness in this sense requires something more of us and from us. It requires us to allow that person to be fully restored in your imagination actively thinking positively about them and your hope for their future. And more than all of that, it demands supporting that person in their journey toward reconciliation, even when you are the one that they've wronged. It's that support that means everything. Support is how we help that person return to the beloved community how we help them become themselves, help them become the person that God has called them to be, created them to be. And it's support in all situations, in all of their difficulty, in all of their unpleasantness that we'd rather not deal with, to be silent in our judgment of that person, how we help them become themselves. We are there present with our support we are quiet in our judgment and we love them without ceasing. If we can do all of that, Bonhoeffer argued, if we can do all of those things, he says, it might come close to forgiveness. That even in doing all of that, all of those things that seem and feel impossible and we have no idea what that path actually looks like to walk, he says, if you can do all of it, it might come close to forgiveness, because forgiveness is something deeper and more than we have imagined it to be. Of course, anyone who has actually taken this posture toward others knows just how difficult it actually is. And it's from that realization of just how hard forgiveness is that Peter asks Jesus the question, Lord, if another member of the church sins against me, how often should I forgive? 
which is just another way of saying, how long do I have to stomach this person? How long? How long do I have to endure this person who has hurt me, who has wounded me, who's betrayed me, this one who's been inconsiderate and insensitive? Lord, Peter asks, how long? Because surely it has to end at some point. The wrong has to simply be called out. And when we begin to ask those questions, at the heart of that longing is the sense that our own rights have been violated. I have the right, we tell ourselves, to not be bothered by that person. I have the right, we tell ourselves, to keep them at arm's length. I have the right. So how long does that have to go on? Seven times? (laughs) And more often than not, we kind of pity Peter here, like, oh, sweet Peter, seven times. Seven times isn't gonna cut it. In fact, we agree with Jesus that seven times isn't nearly enough, but that's only because we have a shallow perspective of forgiveness and what it demands of us. We start to think about how many times in our own lives we've simply overlooked a hurt or a betrayal and we've called it forgiveness. To just overlook it, to not acknowledge it, to not deal with it. And we say, well, I forgave them. Or how many times we've kept people at arm's length, leaving them alone and we considered our relationship reconciled. But when we give it a second thought and we start to think what forgiveness actually requires of us, that we have to to make the best of the wrong that's been done to us, that we have to repay evil with good, accepting the other person as if that person had always been our dearest friend, we start to see that forgiving even one time is no small feat. Peter thinks he's setting the bar high seven times. In a way, we understand that this is the kind of forgiveness that we're called to. So much so that we have a couple cute little quips about the process. We say things like forgive and forget. We say live and let live. And all of that is true at its deepest and fullest sense. When we forgive, when we genuinely forgive out of a love that simply refuses to turn the other person loose and it insists on continuing to support that person back to wholeness, again, it's no small feat. Even one time is hard, let alone seven times, let alone 77 times. So how do we do it? This is at the heart of Peter's question to Jesus. To this, Bonhoeffer says, not seven times, Peter, but 77 times, Jesus says. And he knows that only in this way can he help Peter. Do not count, Peter. Instead, forgive without counting. Do not torment yourself with the question of how long. Endlessly, Peter, endlessly, that is what it means to forgive. And precisely that is what grace is for you. That alone will make you free. Don't keep the score, he says. When we count, once, 
twice, three times, the only result is that we begin to agonize over that relationship. Now, I do want you to hear me because this, this does not mean you just let people run amok over your heart and over your life. In fact, there are some people who become so toxic, people who begin to do real harm to you and to your family that it would be unfaithful for you not to protect yourself from them. That's not what we're suggesting. But before we get there, before we can reconcile with breaking relationships with friends or family, we have to notice that as long as we are still counting, so long as we are still keeping the score, so long as we are still rolling around that initial sin, that initial wound or betrayal, you have to realize we've never truly forgiven that person even once, even the first time, so long as we're keeping score. Again, Bonhoeffer says this, putting words in Jesus' mouth. Peter, he says, free yourself from such counting. Forgiving and pardoning know neither number nor end. You need not worry about your own rights since they are already taken care of with God. You may forgive without end. Forgiveness has no beginning or end. Forgiveness for Bonhoeffer, for Peter, for us, it takes place daily. In the same breath that we ask God to give us this day our daily bread, we also ask, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And because God is faithful to forgive us unceasingly, we are free to forgive others. Because forgiveness ultimately is not our work. It's God's work. Forgiveness ultimately comes from and belongs to God. We are free to forgive in this kind of way because it's not our forgiveness. It's God's forgiveness that we are embodying for the sake of the other person. You're free to surrender your own rights, Bonhoeffer says. This is just an aside. You can stop the clock for a minute. One of the ways that we can tell our faith has been hijacked by cultural conversations, by politics, is that we start talking more about protecting our rights than we do talking about what is due to God and due to our neighbor. Christians have rights, to be sure, but our rights are informed by the gospel, and unfortunately, they're not the kind of rights that we wish we had. They're the rights to lay down our lives for our friends. As John's gospel says, greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for one's friends. They're the right to love our enemies, the right to do good to those who hate you, the right to resist evil by doing good. What Jesus tells Peter, forgive them, not seven times, but 77 times. This is good news for us. 
It's good news. You may forgive one another, Jesus tells him. Jesus is giving Peter something liberating, something joyous, a kind of permission to exist in the world in a kind of way. Something that's going to free Peter and eventually us from opposition, from competition with one another. You have permission to forgive, Jesus says, again and again and again. So, Bonhoeffer says, listen, there is no longer any need for us to be so sensitive. (laughs) Remember, he's in Nazi Germany. We gain nothing by it, he says. There's no need for us to be concerned about our own honor, no need to be indignant when others repeatedly wrong us, no need to continually judge these persons. We need only accept them as they are and forgive them for everything, absolutely everything, without end, without qualification. How scandalous is this? Not to just say it in the midst of a community, but in the midst of a community surrounded by people who would murder them if they knew they existed. It's scandalous because it means we can live with that kind of generous grace. We can live in such a way that we can enjoy peace with our neighbors, a peace that Jesus says no one and nothing can ever disturb. This is that peace that passes understanding. It's here that our friendships, our marriages, our brotherhood and sisterhood receive exactly what they need when we are free and liberated to live with that kind of forgiveness, it means that we see this enduring peace, this peace that no one else can touch. That's the invitation that we all need. You may forgive one another. You who are in Christ are free to forgive. What's unfortunate is that it's precisely when Jesus wants to give us this precious gift that we immediately respond with how difficult it is. Here's a precious thing that Jesus has offered us and our response is to simply complain and to grumble about how difficult it is, how hard it is. We start asking questions like who is able to do this? Who's able to take this gift of grace, this yoke that is easy, a burden that is light? We can't understand it because we take that easy burden and we turn it to something unbearable, an unbearable burden for ourselves and for the other person. Who's able to forgive a friend or a partner, a brother or sister? Who is able to forgive them for everything and just bear it together with them? And when those questions rise up in us, they're immediately met with a sense of fear. And when that fear is activated, it alerts our defensiveness. I don't want to do it. I can't do it. Plus, that person hasn't really earned forgiveness anyway. We ask Jesus for help, help me forgive. And Jesus says, okay, forgive endlessly, without fear. 
but then we resist the very help that we asked for in the first place. I don't want to do it. I can't do it. And it's precisely when that kind of resistance rises up in us that Jesus tells another story. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. You can imagine that it brings no joy for Jesus to recount this story about this person who experienced mercy but remained hard-hearted. But it's by telling this story that Jesus gives us the answer that we need to our petitions for help. For help, he shows us the path to forgiveness. For all of us, every single one of us, our ability to forgive is all wrapped up in our own story of being forgiven. And the reality is some of us can't get along to forgiving our friends because we haven't dealt with receiving forgiveness for ourselves. We haven't forgiven ourselves for those things that we did. We haven't really trusted the grace and the mercy of God when it comes to forgiveness in our own life. But this is why so much of our liturgy that we submit to is designed to help us remember that we are the baptized, to remember that we are the forgiven. So much of what we do, from saying the words of the creed to sometimes you'll see members of our community mark themselves with the sign of the cross, all of this is in remembrance that you are baptized, which is just another way of saying you are forgiven. We are the people who can forgive because we know what it is to be at the bottom of ourselves. We know what it is to be utterly unable to stand up straight and to make all kinds of empty promises before God, promising to change, promising to make things right, promising to repay those things that were taken. And it's in that moment when God looked at us, looked at us with compassion and with mercy and erased all of our debts and we were free. We were forgiven. We were once again able to look God and our neighbor in the eye and be ourselves again. Remembering your baptism is about remembering that moment. But we're forgetful, a historically forgetful people. Israel, time and time again, forgets all the good that God does for them. And in the same way, we forget so quickly the gift that we've received. So rather than supporting those who have wronged us, rather than liberating the one who has betrayed us, we instead want them to pay us back everything they took from us. We insist in our own self-righteousness that we can never forgive them until they return to us everything that's missing. Even though we know that the things that were taken, our peace, our trust, our time. There's no way anyone can give those things back to us. Those are gifts that are given to us by God that can only be received again and again. This is how we end up placing impossible burdens on those who sin against us. We withhold forgiveness unless they can give to us the very thing that God has promised to give to us. But, Bonhoeffer says, can we not see that what we really ought to say is whatever that person has done to me 
is nothing. Absolutely nothing compared to what I have done to God and to that other person by withholding forgiveness, he says. Who has called us to condemn that person when we ourselves are so much more culpable? It sounds like too much. But remember, again, Bonhoeffer is saying this to a group of underground seminarians meeting in secret in the middle of Nazi Germany. He says, if we withhold forgiveness, what we're doing to them is worse than anything they can do to us. And this is the trick. This is the whole lesson, as he says, that though you certainly see the other person's sin, the path to forgiveness is in recognizing your own sin. It's only by recognizing in penitence God's mercy for you that you yourself will be capable of forgiveness. If you find yourself unable to forgive or unable to forgive fully in a way that supports the one who has wronged you, supporting them back into wholeness, in a way that loves without ceasing, then what we need is to be brought back to our own need of God's forgiveness. Because again, at the end of the day, my ability to forgive those who trespass against me isn't dependent on my forgiveness, but on God's forgiveness being realized through me. That's what we're after. Don't forget, it's God's forgiveness we're sharing. Anything else is just madness. If we pretend to be forgiving to kind of create this, this, this manufactured wholeness, manufactured community, but it's just the work that we've done, it's madness. It's insane. You should not be a part of those kinds of communities. It's God's forgiveness, not our own. Anything else just makes us cosmic punching bags and we have to take the worst of what the world has to throw at us and that's not what God wants for you and it's not what God wants for them. We are called to embody the forgiveness that belongs to God and when we do, if we do, what comes of it isn't a silent indifference to people. It's not the ability to leave one another alone, but an insistence that we belong to one another and my healing and your healing are all bound up in one another. And it's only when we are whole that the world can be blessed. That's the point. Remember the Exodus story that we read at the beginning. Israel saw the dead Egyptians, the people who had oppressed them, had beaten them, had wounded them deeply in a hundred different ways. And they saw their dead bodies on the seashore. And they said, this is the great work of God against the Egyptians. This story ends not so much as a story for God's people, but a story against those who had oppressed them. I'm almost done, I promise. The prophet Isaiah Chapter 19, this chapter is framed as an oracle concerning Egypt. And if that doesn't make sense, just know that an oracle is a way of saying this is bad news for these people. Listen to this. Pretty standard fare when it comes to oracles and the treatment of Egypt. 
It says, see the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and comes to Egypt. The idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence and the heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. I will stir up Egyptians against Egyptians and they will fight one against the other, neighbor against neighbor, city against city, kingdom against kingdom. The spirit of the Egyptians within them will be emptied out and I will confound their plans. They will consult the idols and the spirits of the dead and the ghosts and the familiar spirits. I will deliver the Egyptians into the hand of a hard master. A fierce king will rule over them, says the sovereign, the Lord of hosts. Yes, we say, finally. The waters of the Nile will be dried up and the river will be parched and dry. Its canals will become foul. The branches of Egypt's Nile will diminish and dry up. Reeds and rushes will rot away. There'll be bare places by the Nile on the brink of the Nile. And all that is sown by the Nile will dry up, be driven away and be no more. Those who fish will mourn. All who cast hooks will lament, and those who spread nets will languish. The workers in flax will be in despair. Its weavers will be dismayed. All who work for wages will be grieved. The princes are utterly foolish. (laughs) How can you say to Pharaoh, I am one of the sages, a descendant of the ancient kings. Where now are your sages? Let them tell you and make known what the Lord of hosts has planned against Egypt. And then there's this shift. And it says this. On that day, that terrible day we just heard about, there will be an altar to the Lord in the center of the land of Egypt and a pillar of the Lord at its border. When was the last time we heard pillar language in reference to God? It's in the desert, leading and guiding the people of God. Except now that pillar is here, alongside an altar. It will be a sign and a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. When they cry to the Lord because of oppressors, he will send them a savior and will defend and deliver them. The Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians and the Egyptians will know the Lord on that day and will worship and sacrifice and give burnt offerings and they will make vows to the Lord and perform them. The Lord will strike Egypt. We love to hear that. The Lord will strike Egypt, striking and healing. They will return to the Lord. He will listen to their supplications and heal them. This is a reversal of what we saw happening in Exodus. And then listen to this. On that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and the Assyrian will come into Egypt and the Egyptian into Assyria, and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. On that day, Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my heritage. This is what God's forgiveness can make possible for us. Israel has come to take the role of the third of God's people in the midst. 
And then the way opened so that the Egyptians and the Assyrians may worship the Lord. And then all the nations are named as God's people. Listen, we don't know how. We don't even know how long. But if we can continue to hold that space for God's forgiveness to work, both in us and in them, there can be healing and there can be wholeness. But it means we have to hold that space. We can't resign to just close ourselves off. Your presence in that person's life who wounded you, your insistence to stick around and not be silent but support them in their healing might just be an altar in the center of the land of Egypt. Remember the psalmist, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. And the invitation today is for us to look at the people that have wronged us and make a table ready for them. People who would be our enemies if it weren't for God. Close your eyes just for a second. Bring that person back into your imagination. How do you see them differently? What would it look like for us to let go of our judgments and our grudges? When you remember your own need for God's mercy, do you feel yourself capable of forgiveness? What word might you speak to that person? that might open up space for you and for them. As the baptized, remember the forgiveness you offer is God's forgiveness. Forgiveness that can bear that distress of others, can be merciful without measure, without qualification, without end. It's forgiveness that frees us to love. Bonhoeffer closed his sermon with this prayer. Lord, our God, may we experience your mercy so that we too may practice mercy without end. Amen.